Hello, I'm Sarah Connolly, and tonight I'm talking to Dr. Bridie O'Donnell, who's literally talking to you before she goes to work, but she has just become the holder of a UCI hour record. Bridie, how are you? I'm very well. How are you, Sarah? I mean, has it sunk in? Yeah, for sure. I think um, being on the back page of Le Kip as the image du jour <laughs> on Saturday, that was a highlight and that probably helped make it sink in for sure. That was just incredible. Have you just been in a media rampage between um, getting back to Melbourne? Oh, no, not not so much because, of course, the Tour Down Under is on. So there were still two stages of the Tour Down Under to finish in Adelaide. So a lot of the media were definitely preoccupied with that. Um, Simon Guerin's Australia's favourite love child of men's road cycling um, was in the Ogu jersey. So that's understandably um, took a lot of people's attention um, because it's, it was it's a pretty cool race and Saturday's a hilly stage. So, um, no, no, I, I was able to go out. I wasn't like a Kardashian being hounded um, in my sunglasses. <laughs> Did you did you hang around the um, tour down under like looking cool and hoping that people would ask you for your autograph <laughs> and, and all yelling out, "Isn't that Bradley O'Donnell?" and then looking around, <laughs> yeah, yeah, getting people to come up to you and go, you know, just going, just facing <laughs> small children, going, "Do you want my autograph? Do you know who I am?" Yeah, bowling people over. No, no, no. We were too tired. We all just hung out at home and did nothing, and then had a lovely family dinner and sponsors and stuff on Saturday night. So it was great. Yeah, I did notice that you were drinking moe and eating pizza. Oh, that was a great night. So when we we finally got home after anti-doping and um, everything took a long time and, and um, the people I was staying with and a couple of other people came over and we just sort of all sat around and then someone ordered pizzas and we looked at the time and it was sort of 1am and I wasn't tired and <laughs> then some Moe got cracked open. It was, it was a terrific night. We were all just sitting around and it was actually kind of cool because there were so many people involved in from my absolute circle who were doing a lot of the work you know literally pressing timing buttons every time my front wheel crossed a line Johnny that great guy he you know he was really stressed so everyone kind of told their version of the story which was and so then what happened was this so I was getting tired and I thought gotta move my legs gotta move my legs don't want to you know uh so yeah it was actually a really cool thing to do Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it must be, you did have a lovely a lovely team. I thought everything about that day, I mean, you know me, I was agnostic about, I wasn't just agnostic about the hour, I was anti-hour. <laughs> I was our atheist for when I spoke to you yeah. in November, and you converted me. So, you know, when I got up early, and I was supposed to be doing some work, and I couldn't because I was sick with nerves because of you. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry about that. I apologize. <laughs> Did you enjoy watching it, aside yeah. from knowing that? Did you, there was an interesting way uh, that yeah. they presented You know what, yeah. I've, I've watched a couple of hours before, on, on, and I wonder, that's one of the reasons why I don't like it, because it's just incredibly tedious, you know, there's yeah. people just talking continually, but I was super impressed with the way mm. that they showed it, especially the mm. way that they kind of balanced, um, you know, they weren't trying to keep the crowd up the full time. I mean, did you plan yeah. that? Uh, no, no, no. Look, I think that that was just a combination of um, good commentary by Rick Fulcher, who's very experienced, and obviously Anna Mears, who knows how to get a crowd involved. Mm -hmm. And also, I suppose, um, it started a bit low-key, you know, and there were the great sprinting races to watch, which I think was excellent. So literally, when I got to the track, the sprinters were just about to start at 6pm, mm. and there weren't that many people, but slowly people started filtering in and sitting in the seats and coming down into the infield. And by the time we started, I think people were excited, but they kind of, uh, you know, there was a bit of a history of the last time this happened in Australia, it was a train wreck. And, I mean, even the organisers kept reminding me of that. <laughs> Don't do what Bob Bridge did. Oh, my God. It's like the <laughs> standard of what not to do. Um, no disrespect to him as an athlete, but, the, but it just didn't work from their perspective. So 
Um, but I was just feeling so relaxed and I even made a joke, which didn't come out on the commentary apparently because there was no, you know, like the live stream, I mean, where I was in the start gate and I turned to the crowd and said, please don't judge me on my really bad start. I am not a track cyclist. And they all laughed. And so I think everyone thought, okay, this is all right. She seems pretty relaxed. It's, um, you know, let's just see what happens. And then perhaps with the, the fact, because I could hear the commentary the whole time, I was, I was thinking I was going to be in some sort of pain cloud, unable to determine anything. But I actually found myself getting quite annoyed sometimes. I'd hear Rick Fulcher say, she's going to be feeling it now. And I thought, actually, Rick, I feel all right. Um, <laughs> someone said I, that on Twitter. Like someone was saying, yeah, I'm sure she's super happy hearing them all talk about how painful it is and how, yeah, and how she can still fail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It could all go wrong. Um, but, yeah, I was hearing, aside from even just getting my um, my lap splits every lap, I was hearing every 10 minutes he would say her target was 31 laps, she's just done 31 laps. And they kept using a lot of words like being consistent and being, you know, above pace and everything was good. And that does wonders for your confidence, you know. <laughs> so that was great. Yeah, did you like, did you appreciate all the, she's 41 and a doctor? <laughs> I don't know if women athletes are supposed to die when they turn 40 and just hide <laughs> under a hole, but I know a lot of amazing athletes who are over 40, particularly endurance athletes, you know. Mm. Um, actually, in the in the lead-up, um, someone asked me who my role models or inspirations were as athletes, and I, I must confess I don't know if I had anyone specific, but one person I mentioned, and I'm not sure if the British audience um, or even the global audience would know her very well, but... In um, 2006, we had the Commonwealth Games here in Melbourne and uh, Karen McCann, who was an absolutely amazing marathon runner, was running side by side with a West African woman. I'm sorry, what, I can't remember what country she ran from, but, it, but the size and colour and running um, disparity between them couldn't have been greater. McCann's this very tall, gangly, pale-skinned white woman and the West African woman was tiny, uh, you know, minuscule, efficient runner. Anyway, they were running into the MCG, the iconic Melbourne football stadium, and they had to do a lap of the MCG as a finish. And as they were running side by side, the commentator is Steve Monaghetti, famous Australian marathoner and he was choking up commentating this and and millions of people watching on tv and hundreds of thousands watching lining the the path they're running over and karen mccann you know 43 year old mother of two absolutely stellar marathoner um out sprinted this west african woman and won the commonwealth games gold medal and she died two years later of breast cancer and um you know it was just She's just a remarkable athlete and so inspirational. But one of the things they said when she ran in was, there's her husband. He looks after their children when she goes on training camp. <laughs> oh, you know, like what? he's the father of them, so he looks after he, them. Does like he babysit their children? Does he, he babysit does... their own children. Oh, my God. Oh, my <laughs> God. Does he thought... sometimes have to look after them overnight? <laughs> <laughs> and I just, it just was another really amazing reminder of just – the little extra challenges, even the best marathoner in the country, um, people ask her, but when you go to altitude training, what who, what happens to your children? You think no one's asking the male athletes that yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's, that's one of my, you know, no one, like, how many children does Jens have these days? Like 11 or something. 18? Yeah, yeah. They're all <laughs> geocasting all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Commentary aside. <laughs> I thought the commentary was generally great. No, I really liked it. And I, I think what I found interesting was they weren't, they they had 
watching at home, you know, they had, they showed the scoreboard so you could see exactly where you were in comparison. And, you know, you could watch the, the live, you know, the live timings that were on the Cycling Australia site. So it was, I could understand it. And I think That's because cool. you had that, they didn't feel the need to talk continually. But one of the things I really wanted to ask you about was, and, and Polder Speed asked me to ask you this too, is about your playlist, because that was, um, oh, yeah. that was your music, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, man. I needed some upbeat dance music that the kids are listening to. You know, this is apparently what people under 41 listen to. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of that stuff is stuff I listen to when I'm training. And so when those songs would pop up, like when Sia, Titanium, that makes me think of when I was racing in the US with Vanderkit and we used to listen to that in this big truck that we would drive around in being, you know, big F-off-sized American people. And um, that song's a great track. So a lot of those tracks really remind me of... Uh, times that they came out, sessions that I would do motor pacing. A lot of that Calvin Harris, um, no, David Guetta album. There were a couple of songs from that awesome David Guetta album that was like number one for millions of weeks. I used to listen to those motor pacing um, in Palo Alto uh, behind Yuki, the most fantastic motor pacer of all time. Hey, Yuki. Um, she would ride the motorbike and I would ride behind her and I'd just listen to like dance tracks for hours <laughs> on end. So that stuff was really cool for me. Yeah, I noticed that halfway through, did you, did you kind of sequence it? For the right time. No. To, okay, I, I thought no. Florence coming on halfway through. Florence oh, how good was that? Like just uh, at yeah, the right yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was that was good. Say my name is a great track. Yeah. yeah, but it's yeah. I, I so is it so that was quite interesting. I did I did think it was a little bit girly. I have to admit, Doctor Rizal. <laughs> Well, uh, I think it just needed to counter all the death metal from Yenzi and the, <laughs> the Katsan from the Aussie Boys. I didn't, I didn't listen to their um, playlists, but I, but you know, that's why songs called pop music, Sarah. It's popular. <laughs> There's no need to be a hater about Katy Perry, okay? <laughs> so. You've been planning this for ages. Um, I said yeah. back in November to you that I didn't think that you'd have come public with wanting to do it if you didn't know that you could do it. But now that you've finished, when did you know? When did you know that you were going to make it? Um, on Friday morning. Really? Yeah. yeah, and I say that because I had probably the worst day mentally of my life on Thursday. Mm -hmm. So the contrast probably was so great that I just felt like this is this is going to happen. We're, we're going to be able to do it now, you know. Um, and it was a very, very uh, good and hard lesson. Um, I think I might have to write a blog about it. But I totally suffered from, um, you know, imposter syndrome on Thursday, which was something that was culminated from um, the normal challenges and logistics that happen. You know, we flew into Adelaide. I was hot as Hades. We went straight to the track to do a session at race time, so around 8 p.m., and the organiser insisted on we had this big meeting and there was lots of logistics, and he said things like, everyone keeps asking me, are you going to break it? And I say, I'm not going to answer, but I said to them, don't worry, she will. I mean, there's no pressure, but you know that Brian Cookson's coming out. And he kind of – there was all this sort of no pressure, but you better, you know, <laughs> do this. And then we did a training session, and I didn't feel that great. Um, and we rode to a 19-1 schedule and I rode some 10-minute efforts and the third one didn't. It was a bit of an effort to hold schedule and I thought, oh, that's not great. And then we went back to our accommodation and the air conditioning wasn't working and I just lay there in this hot little room feeling tired and I just thought, this is, this is all going to be a disaster. It was really interesting. I, I, I just... I didn't feel um, super anxious, but then I couldn't get to sleep and I lay awake for four or five hours. And so, as you know, and any athlete knows, you know, sleep is so paramount to your feelings of well-being and your ability to recover. So the whole house, actually, none of us slept well because of this lack of air conditioning. And we all woke up grumpy and I spilled coffee all over the floor and I went for a ride and I just thought, my God, what was I thinking? 
what was I thinking? I, this is all going to be a disaster. It was really very powerful how bad I felt. Um, and I spoke to some wonderful people, really great people, uh, who gave me some great advice about that idea of mindfulness, particularly around that idea of think that's just your that's your fearful self. It's your um, it's your childlike self. It's your the part of you that doesn't want to be humiliated, telling you you should quit now before it all goes bad. You know that not that I ever considered not doing it, but I basically was thinking I don't. I'm the reason I've never done this before or been a world champion is because I'm not good enough. And what was I thinking to even try this? They were all the thoughts in my head. It was terrible. Um, anyway, but look, the day unfolded. I talked to great people. I tried to relax. I watched some, you know, great mindless iTunes movies and um, read. I've been reading this great book, Iron War, the one about Dave Scott and Mark Allen, the endurance triathletes, um, and that big battle they had in 1989, which is a fantastic book about endurance suffering. And um, I just thought, well, it is. I still do have another 24 hours. I can't feel worse than this. And I slept 10 hours and I woke up on Friday and I just thought, oh, thank God, the world didn't end. <laughs> um, we've still got 12 more hours and my coach slept better and we all met in the kitchen and everyone said, it's, it's going to happen, we'll be all right. You know, so I think that and then a very funny meeting that I had with Steve um, where he kind of sat me down and he looked at all of the data, that, all of the lap splits that we've done in every single training session, what my watts were, what the temperature was, what the pressure was in the velodrome in every training session to, so he could basically say, based on the conditions tonight, this is the schedule you should ride. And um, sensibly, because he knows me, he said, what do you think you, you should aim for? And I said, oh, I feel <laughs> like I, I'm going to hold 19 ones. And he smiled and he said, I want you to hold 19 two five, and here's why. So he gave me all of his supporting evidence like a debater and <laughs> I said, okay, I trust you, I believe you. And, he, and what he was trying to say, which I think is wonderfully clever because he knows me, is that he said, I think he realised how fearful I'd been the day before and he said, if you start, if you promise me that you're going to ride the first 30 minutes at 19.25 schedule, Basically, nothing can go wrong. You can't blow up. The data, you know, the heart rate, the, the power says you can hold that all day long until you run out of water and nutrition mm. and everyone goes home and cries because they're bored. But, but for me, that was, I think, um, I think that, you know, we, it's very easy as a first-time good athlete or a not-yet-world champion or a not-yet-Olympian to think that the other people who are Olympians and world champions um, have had, somehow had an easier run than you. You know, I think that's a really common misconception. And I even found myself thinking, I bet Wigo didn't get nervous. I bet Wigo. <laughs> I bet Wigo doesn't feel anxious. You know, I really did think that. I thought to myself, those those great people, I bet Lizzie Armitstead wasn't nervous the entire road race at Richmond because she looked so calm and then she won, so therefore she's better than me, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, the idea that he was basically saying, I know you haven't ridden an hour world record before and broken the record, but I'm telling you that if you do it this way, you, you won't combust, Bobridge style. And so I said, okay, and I swore on my pinky finger that I would do it that way. Um, that being said, the poor guy nearly gave him a heart attack because I rode the first lap in 26 seconds and then the next three laps were all like 18 and a half seconds and he just had, he did exactly what he said he was going to do, which is to stay like a robot and hold the lap board for me. But he looked at me like, are you fucking serious? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and 
just like Wigo said, it's so, so true. I actively had to almost think, back pedal, back pedal, put pressure on the pedals. This is way, I feel amazing. I, this is way too easy and I'm riding, you know, at 0.8 of a second faster for every lap than I'm supposed to be. So I just had to back off a bit um, to, to actively not go too hard and that was in my mind the whole time. Mm. Wow. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, no, it's a great, <laughs> it's a great long answer. I mean, it's fast. There's so many things I want to ask you I, off, yeah. off the back of that. I mean, was it? Do you think one of the reasons you were going faster was because you were there with crowds? Because it must have been very strange being, you know, having trained and trained and trained and trained and trained, and then to suddenly be there with. You know, I know it's not like the biggest velodrome in the world and the biggest crowds in the world, but to be there with people like cheering for you and yeah, and an audience, you're right. I mean, that, that's never happened to me before. I felt like I would. I must. I must know what male pro cyclists feel like all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean. You, it is pretty wonderful and inspiring. But then, it, but that being said, everything else about the way we structured what I was doing was the same as I've done 32 times before because this was only my 33rd track session. So mm-hmm. basically I was there on the wind trainer and I had an esky and I was doing this and I was getting ready and the boys were over there. So I just basically, I was so calm beforehand that I just, I saw that there were all those people there, but I didn't. I didn't feel like, oh God, I, I must do well. Oh, this is so stressful. I think that everything. And and look, this is also comes from being a time trialist. You always have to literally sometimes write down. Okay, my start time is at two fifty three in, in the afternoon. When do I get on the ergo? When do I put on my booties? You know, so time trialists do that a lot. They work backwards from their start time mm, to know mm-hmm, when they're supposed mm-hmm. to do things. So, um, it, I, I wasn't nervous at all. I wasn't even agitated. Um, I, I think there were a lot of little things that were happening where I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? Um, but I didn't let it bother me. Like, for example, I got off the, the ergo much quicker than I had planned. I don't know why, just the timing or something. And I went over and sat down and I heard the commentator say, it's still 12 minutes to go and Bridie's ready. She's sitting in a chair. And I thought, oh, that's a bit sooner than I thought sitting here. You know, I'm going to sit here for 12 minutes. That's, But I didn't think, oh, that's bad. I fucked up. Mm-hmm. I just thought, oh, well, here I am you know, I'm ready, I'll just sit here and they're going to put the bike in and I'm just going to watch and I'm going to listen to music and I was feeling pretty relaxed. So I think that that arousal level, that mental arousal being in the right place, that was everything for me, you know. So I think that's part of the reason why I went faster because I was relaxed. I think I went faster because I had an amazing chain that Muckoff had prepared, you know, the same chain as we go, not the actual chain, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like a crazy, crazy, amazing fast chain. Those guys, uh, I don't know what they do. It's, they send it to Mars and, and like it gets <laughs> baked with something, but it was so cool. Tears, really tears of unicorns and... Um, yeah, yeah, unicorns, tears, yeah, virgins, vestal virgins. Squeezing, um, squeezing fairies to get the juices. <laughs> That's yeah. horrible. Um, I had new bearings in from Seabear, this great company that makes ceramic bearings. And, and, and absolutely, this is a plug for those people because they weren't mm. actually on my bike until that training, until that session. So they weren't there, you know, um, three days earlier when I did my Sunday night session in disc or, no, sorry, five days earlier. So there were things that were different for sure that were faster. Um, I even had my gold Wigo tyres on, the Victoria tyres that I'd bought um you know on the illegal interwebs that um they were beautiful beautiful tires so i'm not sponsored by them but they i bought the exact same track tires that he used that are just i think they they probably perish after a certain number of kilometers <laughs> but, um, yeah well, you, you, can, you can ride them once and then they just 
disappear. Yeah, they explode like the car in the Blues Brothers. They just fall <laughs> to the ground. Um, so there was definitely some technical things that made me go faster. And we, we were fortunate with the barometric pressure. Like it wasn't the lowest it's ever been, but it was pretty damn low. And that was very fortunate because obviously that's a big part of it. When the temperature wasn't really hot, um, I was fortunate that it was warm enough that I could go fast but not so hot that I would begin to fatigue and get heat stress, you know, 40 mm. minutes in like I had five weeks earlier when I went and did the test event over there. Mm. Oh, interesting. I mean, wow. I, so, um, one of the people asked me, um, was it, you know, you were doing it at sea level and obviously Molly, Molly Schaffer van Howling, who was the last, um, you know, the last uh, record, who last person to break the record, she did hers at altitude. I mean, were you mm. worried about that or did you just, you know, did you? Uh, well, I didn't. It's not like I'd ma ever made a choice. You know, it's not like someone said, here are the pros and cons of both. Which one do you want to do? Do you want to go to Mexico? <laughs> uh, there, there was never a, that choice at all. So I think that sometimes helps you with any um, feelings of being disconcerted is that that was never an option. And I thought this could be the first time the record gets broken at sea level because obviously um, Leontien Van Morsel's record of 2003, that was at Mexico as well, mm. same track. So um, I thought, well, here I am, you know, uh, Wigo and Dowsett both broke their record at sea level, so it's not impossible. You just, um, yeah, I, I guess um, I was working with what I had and both from, you know, physiologically and uh, geographically yeah and and yeah I mean it costs a lot more money to get from Australia to Mexico than it does oh, to get Lord. from the USA <laughs> yeah yeah and look that being said they went without their challenges too and I've heard her yeah. talk her and Rob talk about that you know again that idea that oh they just had to go down to Mexico and you think yeah they had to go into another country they had to communicate with commissaires in in Spanish and they had to do all those logistics I mean, as we've talked about over and over this is a really complicated enterprise um, so it's not like she had some sort of easy run either but but for sure it's faster um, at altitude yeah yeah so you're there on the day you've had this terrible time you know the, a couple of days before you're you're there you're ready um Andy Ruse asked me to ask you what was going through your mind at different parts of the ride or were you or do, and, and my question is or was anything were you just there um I think what I um, initially I'd started and all I wanted to focus on was coming around the bend and seeing the times that I was supposed to see and mm -hmm. I feel like I was doing quite a good job early on of just responding to that information. So I'd see that I'd done a bit of a fast lap, a lap that was under schedule and I would just slightly try and back off. So a lot of it was technical. A lot of it was me giving myself some technical feedback to go, okay, that was a good one, do that again. Um, despite my appalling line riding, I was telling myself <laughs> to ride on the line but I look now at the replay and I rode freaking 49 kilometres that night. Like it was so bad. Um, I, yeah, I haven't seen a lot worse in terms of how high I was riding. That yeah. being said, though, I was really relaxed. So I didn't go, God, this is bad, you're shit. I just think, okay, too high, come on, try and yeah. bring, it, bring it down on the bends, you know. So I was a lot of it, I suppose, was those technical mindful cues now shrug down shrug down okay you've looked up and seen the time now put your head back down so that I, I did actually move a little bit you know I moved around on the saddle a little bit to try and change weight distribution um, and I moved moved my head down lower and then I'd move it up a little to see times or information that was all I was looking at was Steve's um, lap lap timing thing you know I couldn't really see anything else I knew there were people there my boyfriend and his mate were standing on the back straight cheering and I could hear them yell out um, and the, I could hear a lot of people on the back straight actually because there was less of them so I could hear their names the first time they started banging those inflatable kind of 
stick things together. Mm. You know, you see them at races. I nearly peed my pants because I thought, oh, my God, I've blown a tyre. <laughs> um, and then the next lap I thought, oh, no, that's okay. That's just some people banging on. <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, so it wasn't until – and then then I was getting cues and we'd scheduled the cues. So every um, – at 50, 40, 30, and then every five minutes I was getting the time to go. So he was holding up literally 50 and then a 40 and then a 30. So because the time does get away from you a little bit where you're thinking how many minutes have I done. And then we also agreed that at 45, 30, and 15 he would hold up the um, – the projected distance. So the first distance he was going to hold up would be, if you keep going at this pace, you will you will get this. And so the first number I saw after 15 minutes said 46.8. And I thought, okay, I feel really great. That's a good number. Um, halfway through, I saw it again and I thought, right, I really want to ride 47K. I, I was just so motivated. I thought, I, I really want to break over that 46.99 barrier I, I couldn't I couldn't think of anything else I would rather do and then with 15 minutes to go I was thinking yeah yeah okay come on legs ready to go ready to go for 47 and nothing happened they just kept going at exactly the same pace so yeah I didn't I didn't have any f- sort of angst which was really mind-blowing as well for me after having some of those really challenging 45 minute test sessions mm. I just didn't feel um I didn't panic at, at, ever and I didn't do any what ifs, which is what I clearly had been doing the day before when I wasn't writing, was I was thinking, oh, God, what if I get to 45 minutes and then, you know, it all falls apart, mm. all that, that really unhelpful anxiety. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I just didn't, I didn't think that, you know. And then I started to think. Um, so what, one thing we had um, discussed was the idea of imagining I was doing a time trial and that I was n- that the rider in front of me was the world record and that I wasn't going to make any inroads on that world record until the turnaround so that 30 minutes was this magical turnaround in my in this time trial that I was doing on the road and that from the turnaround then I was going to start coming home stronger that was the whole idea of this conservative start and so while the splits didn't really change that much obviously your relative perceived effort changes you know so even though I think my overall average split was 19.17 and but I think I almost held that the whole time rather than I didn't lift but it felt like you know it feels like you're trying harder in the last 10 minutes even though you're not going faster you're just you're basically just not slowing down and that does take a lot of mental uh, energy obviously. Yeah Um, are your stats um Corinne Mizoki wanted me to ask you are your um do you have like uh uh, average power and stats online anywhere or will you put them up somewhere? Yeah, yeah I do they yeah yeah they've been published on today's plan uh, which is a software package designed by my old coach Mark Finner so if someone looks up what's today's plan can't remember if it's .com or .com.au, but they will have published it. Um, and Meta Race have all the lap times, obviously. Um, but the today's plan will have my heart rate and power as well. But I was super, super smooth, which was also really great. You know, I think I, I'd be guessing, but I think it was only around two sixty four. So it's not crazy numbers. Um, I'm weighing. I weighed in at sixty four kilos the morning of the ride, so I'm the lightest I've ever been. So, but for me, that means that my heart rate doesn't get to. Th- to my threshold till at least 15 or 20 minutes into the ride. And so that was the whole point. You know, don't – the harder you start, the more devastating the crash will be yeah, 20 minutes Yeah, later. yeah, I, I was so worried. I mean, I, I never thought that you couldn't do it physically, but I was so worried that, like, the nerves might get to you or something because, I mean, that's what yeah. happened to me. <laughs> No, but well, clearly they did. The timing of them was just fortunate that that all happened 24 hours beforehand, you know. Yeah. So – and and that's – it's funny, isn't it? Um 
insight into your own anxiety is a big challenge because, of course, then I started thinking, oh, see, you, you know, Bridie, what your biggest problem is, this is my evil voice in my head, is that you're afraid you won't be tough enough to suffer enough to get through it, you know, that idea that you'll give up. That, um, and I think that there's that real myth too around someone like Bob Ridge who, who people sort of said with him that he just knows how to hurt himself, you know, and you think, yeah, okay. Um, and only one person has said this to me afterwards, like, you look like you could have tried harder. And I thought, well, as people said about Dowsett, the whole point is to break the record. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It shouldn't be about who collapses the best afterwards. Or has you to know? be taken to hospital or something like yeah, that. I mean, we, we, I, we have a myth about... About you know like like Wiggins becoming anorexic to uh, go over the to you know to to do his to come forth in the Tour de France and stuff and how great it was that his wife spent six months nursing him back to health you know what I mean like we have this myth that you have to hurt yourself which yeah. I don't know if that's healthy but you know yeah I don't and I also think that um, a lot of endurance athletes might agree with me but or or and sprint and faster athletes. All of the hurting happened for this last nine months because, you know, like what's that great quote that all spectacular achievements are preceded by unspectacular preparation? <laughs> um, there were endless, monotonous sessions. And one of the things, and I'm happy to talk about this, I think, because I found it really interesting. One of the hardest things I did in the lead up was from two weeks out to one week out, I... Um, I performed this sauna protocol as devised by Stacey Sims, who's the absolutely amazing female sports nutritionist who, who um, started Osmo Nutrition. And she's got a, done a lot of research around nutrition and hydration, but particularly for women, which is great because obviously women are not small men, you know. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um, one of the things I've done in the past is, is sleep at altitude. So I've got an altitude tent and I would sleep at altitude for around three weeks and the goal in that is to try and spend around 14 hours a day in the tent, train at sea level, eat whatever, you know, live a bit of a life outside of it, but generally try and be in there from, you know, 8pm to 10am or whatever. And as is typical, uh, we had a really blisteringly hot summer here in December, January, mm -hmm. and we had other events nationals and Christmas and all these sorts of things that interfered with that. I don't mean Christmas is in lots of pudding and turkey i mean uh you know logistics seeing family traveling to places and i i basically was reluctant to do altitude again given the timing of the hour and i talked about it with my coach and i talked about it with stacy and she said okay i want you to try something different that i've had great success with and that is this sauna protocol the the basis of which is you you're using a very difficult heat stress after training to stimulate plasma volume expansion, which is what happens when you go to a hot environment. And I've done this before when I raced Hawaii Ironman, that you arrive in Hawaii two weeks before the race, you go training in the middle of the day and your body responds to all that heat by creating more volume in your bloodstream and you become a better athlete. Um, oh, interestingly, though, this paper also showed a reflexive bounce in EPO, an increase in EPO, because the kidneys, the renal artery, uh, responds to this slight dehydration and heat stress as hypoxia, so right. low oxygen. And it makes more EPO, not enough that it uh, makes a big jump in your hematocrit, but it keeps it the same with the more, more volume. So what this entailed was me basically training normally and then not drinking anything, riding down the road to this local swimming pool where there's sauna and spa and sitting in a sauna for half an hour that was 75 degrees and not drinking anything and then coming home and only really slowly rehydrating over the course of three hours. 
So you're basically passively dehydrating yourself and then you hydrate properly, eat properly, wake up the next morning, do everything normally and then you do it again. You do it seven days in a row and then you stop it seven days before the event. And that was some of the hardest, most uncomfortable, hot, yucky, dry mouth, just disgusting feeling when you're already exhausted from Mm. training and dehydrated and you're sitting in a room that's 75 degrees and there's a pervy dude on the other side of the sauna giving you eye brow raises. (laughs) But that's another story. <laughs> but is that, I mean, is that as a doctor? I mean, obviously you've got a medical degree, famously, you know, doctor, famously Dr. Bridie O'Donnell. Um, do you, I guess because you have the, the ability to kind of translate some of that papers in a way that I wouldn't, for example, does that make it easier or does it make it harder? I mean, do you have to go, no, no, that's rubbish. You have to hydrate. Uh, no, no, no. Well, I mean, it, it makes sense. I think it's natural for a lot of athletes to um, to try things that can, could be dangerous for sure. So your athlete brain can go, shit, shit, is that going to help me? Oh, I'll try it. Um, but your doctor brain is very sensible and thinks, okay, what's the evidence to show this? And she's a she's got a PhD in sports nutrition. She's a very, yeah, very yeah, bright yeah. woman. She's not just someone um, coming up with the idea of, I don't okay. know, go on a paleo diet or something. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, it's and she's done a study with runners. She showed me the data. We talked about it. And there's also that like any any of those things it's the same as sleeping at altitude the um the caveat in brackets always is if your sleep is being disordered by sleeping in this tent either because of the temperature in the tent or your inability to sleep or you get a headache you you go out of the tent you sleep out of it and there's lots of people who've tried sleeping at altitude and it doesn't work for them so they don't do it again um i've been a responder to that in the past i'm a responder in general um i suppose it's taken me a long time to work this out but I, that clearly is what makes me a good athlete that i respond to training load i respond to different types of sessions i can be really crap at doing something one week like those ftp ergos at high revs and my coach will say mm, okay that wasn't great and i'll say no nah. and then the next week i do it and i nail it and he goes oh that was good you know you didn't do it very well last week but you've you've responded to that training stimulus um so I think that in my brain, I thought I'm prepared to try this if, it, if it's not so uncomfortable and terrible. But what was really fascinating, I used sometimes the last 10 minutes in the sauna, which was awful. I think, okay, isn't it amazing how long 10 minutes takes when you're really hot and uncomfortable? Really awful. And I thought, if I can do this, I can last the last 10 minutes of the hour. I'll be moving. <laughs> I'm going to have air blowing over me. And I did think about the sauna when I was on the track and I thought, far out, how much easier is this than being in a sauna after training? <laughs> it's kind of like saying, I was in a concentration camp and now I'm only being beaten over the head. So I don't, uh, no, I think that idea of relative suffering yeah, yeah, or relative, yeah. you know, and that's the whole point of training hard. It not only builds your mitochondria and your muscle strength and your endurance, but it tells your brain that you know how to suffer. And then when you go and implement it, you don't have to do anything world best for you. You're not doing anything different. You're just doing the same thing that you've already done, but on the day when everyone's measuring it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um. Dan Mays asked me to ask you, um, he's talking about pain endurance and, and that kind of pain endurance. Does he, do, you, do, do you think it's something that can be learned or is it something you're born with? And is it more psychological or physiological? And I want to add, and how much does stubbornness? <laughs> stubbornness is key. <laughs> Great question. And look, I think pain endurance um, is is twofold. One is absolutely physical. So it's the the fatigue that comes from 
muscles that have been overworked and aren't being replenished or rested. So you get pain in muscles, particularly when you run, obviously, because you're doing damage. You're putting a lot of force through them from the road, sometimes six, whatever they say, six times your body weight coming through your quadriceps every time they land on the ground. That's why I don't run because it's crazy. Um, but so you're getting physical pain from the, the force. You're getting um, chemical pain from lactic acid and metabolites, so the waste products of your exercise. And if you're not able to replenish fluid and salts and carbohydrate, you're getting that fatigue pain where the glycogen in your muscles is running out. So that's definitely the phys- they're all the physical contributing factors. And then what's really fascinating is the mental fatigue is totally related to completion or distance or time. So we know in, abs- in all physiological studies, if you ask someone to exercise to exhaustion, they always stop sooner than if you said, I want you to do 30 minutes. Um, they will be able to generate more power when they know the outcome. They know the finish line is there. And you see Ironman triathletes after, at the end of 9, 10, 11, 12 hours sprinting for the finish line. You think, why didn't you sprint out in the energy lab 12, 12 miles ago? Um, because they know the finish is coming. And that's that idea of lifting at the end. That's all psychological. There's no reason why after exercising really hard for an hour or four hours or whatever, you should be able to sprint at the end but you do because you're psychologically compelled you know and the other thing that we know about um, endurance athletes and this is universal is that they always perform better against someone or something so you go out you know if you're literally side by side with someone or you're playing across a court from someone or you are trying to best a particular score that's much better than literally just going out into the universe and trying to run as hard as you can for as long as you can there's athletes absolutely need um, kind of constraint in terms of the, what, are, what are the goals here? You know, I'm not just running to see how good I can feel for how long. I need inform- I need feedback of some form, you know. So even the athletes that don't use data or watches, they actually race to win. So their feedback is, I've overtaken you, I've overtaken you, and now I'm going to overtake you. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like when, when, you, um, when I swim and I, I don't, it's not that I'm racing someone next to me, but I'm, I'm clocking myself against them. You know, like t- it's, it's not like t- I'm trying to beat you. It's just I'm trying to beat myself using you as a measure. <laughs> Absolutely. Or I, and and you, that's what's great about cycling and swimming and running too is that you can use people who are a lot slower or faster than you but you gauge your performance relative to this. And so when I was a triathlete and I was swimming with Kieran Perkins, Australia's best endurance swimmer, 1,500-metre Olympian, um, you know, he was crazy faster than me but I would use how many times will he lap me in a 1,000-metre effort which helps me work out if I'm doing well today. You know, how long does it take him to catch me for the first time he laps me? You know, and if, if he doesn't lap me until 450 metres, I'm having a great day if he laps me earlier than that. Whereas, which doesn't take into account, of course, the other person. And that's what's so sometimes so infuriating about cycling and people drafting off. Yeah. You think, you don't, you don't even know me. You don't know if I'm doing an effort. You don't know if I'm recovering. You don't know if I'm about to turn into my driveway here or if I'm going to climb this mountain four times. Just think, yes, I'm keeping up with such and such, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, all, the dudes, all the dudes that can't possibly let a woman overtake them and then just like <laughs> oh, speed up super fast to go past them and then feel like it was an achievement. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that will ever happen again either. <laughs> Well, that's an interesting question, actually. Um, Nick Wells asked me to ask you, what's next? I mean, are you, is this the end? I mean, you've, you famously came to cycling late um, from rowing to triathlon to cycling. What's next? Are you going to do it again? If, if, if Molly Schaffer van Howling does it or if, um, or after the Olympics, if Ellen van Dyke 
takes it on will you will you want to get it back uh, I don't know look I think it was a damn expensive exercise not mm. just for me but for the the commerce getting commissaires and and having the venue and all that sort of thing so it's not a simple um event to orchestrate if you want to do it properly you know officially so um and and I also think not that I'm afraid but it it might be difficult to generate that same mental and physical state you know I, I think I got very lucky or lucky or skillful or whatever it was but I timed a lot of things very very well and that that's a great thing and I'm try, I'm taking pride in that but those things don't happen all the time I could arrive at peak physical fitness with greater track skills and better line writing uh, and you know get unwell or um, have a crappy day from a weather perspective or arrive and, and the start line and be really agitated thinking, well, I've got to break 47.2 now because that's the new record or I've set this record for myself. So um, I have to confess that I, I'm not making it my life's mission to be like Sergei Budker and keep breaking the pole vault world record by a centimetre. I think that um, that that also shows perhaps just a, a more narrow vision of himself as a as an athlete and it you know it was cool and he was doing it for endorsements because he kept breaking the world record over and over and he thought okay I'm going to do this by a centimeter to keep getting bonuses um I, yeah I, I don't know I think that it's quite nice not to have a plan I haven't had that for a, for a long time I mean even two and a half years ago despite my delusions I really was trying to qualify for the um Commonwealth Games in in 2014 I I wanted went over to the Corona de Nations in France to try and win that race to get selected for Australia I didn't win I came seventh um and it was a decent time trial effort um I think that your favorite Ukrainian rider won that day <laughs> um, so you know that yes I like I've been very goal-oriented for quite a few years, um, pretty much ever since I started riding in 2007. So um, I haven't kind of ridden for fun or um, ridden solely in support for of, of a team leader. Um, and I'm not saying that I'm giving up on goals, but um, I actually hadn't thought past here, which, I, which I'm also proud of myself for because in the past I think I've been – very much a future think like, uh, oh, well, if this doesn't work anyway, I've got that race or this thing or the next event or I've got Oceanas. And we do have Oceana championships here in, in six weeks. But I actually was, I didn't even think past January 22nd, which is good for me, you know, because I think that's what you have to do when you're trying to do something extraordinary is that's your finish line. I, you yeah. know, and no, no, I think, I, I think that's, I think that's a good thing. I mean, it's, it, it's, it can be, it can be hard you know, shit, I've been working towards this for so long, but I kind of feel like also it, it's a good bookend for your story, isn't it? You know, it's, yeah, it, yeah, it's a sure. fantastic, if, you know, sometimes you see people kind of carry on, carrying on past their prime and it's like, oh, you know, that's, I see why you're doing it, but it's, it's kind mm. of, it, it just means you go out on a disappointed note. Whereas he, you know, if you wanted to go, oh, that's it, that's my cycling career over. <laughs> sure, I'm going to focus sure. on medicine. People will go, yeah, <laughs> fucking hell, great. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what but I mean that's, it's like that's, that's the beauty I guess of having a job that you really like too um yeah. or even having a job that just ticks the boxes I'm not suggesting we all need to be kind of vociferously passionate about our careers um but it, it does I'm sure it's the same with a lot of male athletes who aren't necessarily working but they've got family they've got a wife and kids and so we hear that a lot a lot of friends of mine road cyclists or triathletes men who have been pro and then they have kids and they suddenly think oh, I didn't have the great Ironman that I wanted or the worlds that I wanted and then they come home and they've still got this two-year-old the two-year-old loves them 
they've still got those same challenges of sleep deprivation and feeding and their wife says, I love you, but, you know, and suddenly they think, oh, okay, the world didn't end because I didn't win that Ironman race or that road road race and there's other things going on so as much as it can be a cliche I do think for a lot of professional male athletes having a family gives them a really really nice healthy perspective and so for the women like me that don't have kids I still think like I've got to go to work today I'm going to see patients those patients have no idea who I am they're not going to go oh hey let's all talk about you and your bike ride they'll be saying anyway back to me and my health which is totally reasonable given that I'm the doctor and they're the patient so that's that's actually quite a nice distraction and it's been that nice for the last 12 months when I was racing NRS that I'd go away to an event and, you know, have a really important goal and maybe I wouldn't get it and then I'd go back to work and it didn't matter. You know, there's a couple of days there where you don't hate yourself because you're thinking, it's okay, I'm making money, I'm paying bills, I'm doing good things, I'm helping people change their lives and that's really rewarding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's and there's so many different things you can do in your career. I think you're very – it's interesting, isn't it, because when women finish, you often have the woman who finishes and have kids and that's a really, really solid – you know, must be a real real culture shock. Do you know what I mean? For sure, and then you for have, sure. And, and you can kind of have – or women who stay on in the sport somehow, you know, like, um, I, you know, your Christy Scrimgers or, mm. or your Nicola Cramners or, or, or sure. Tracy Gaudry's. And so it's kind of but, – but there's also – that benefit that I think that a lot of women have of, you know, being a little bit, being more educated, you know, whether it's having a, you know, you think about people who've trained as a physiotherapist, for example, during their, their cycling or who've mm. been writing or, you mm. know, or Eris Slappendale who's been designing, they've got something else there that, you know, maybe, that, that, that maybe might make it easier as, you know, or at least, at least you know you're not going to starve. Do you know what I mean? If the worst comes to the worst, I can go and tell, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> whereas I think a lot of the men can't. <laughs> For sure, and I, but I think I know we've spoken about this before, but there is something, um, and the wonderful Helen Wyman has written about this, There's, there is something wonderfully um, brave and desperate about saying, actually, this I don't have a fallback plan. This is plan A is elite performance, and I'm going to keep doing it until I, I can't anymore, whether or not that's physical, mental, financial. Um, but I really like that blog she wrote a couple of months ago about, you know, let's not judge one or the other as being superior in terms of women who work and race versus women who give up their jobs to race because she was a physiotherapist and she said you know and I liked it I th it gave me a good perspective because I think in the past I'd probably been one of those people that says oh well well I've got a job you know and you think yeah but I'm starting on the start line with the with the girl who's the professional from rubber bank so we're both the same at the moment we're both competing for the same prize and if I didn't want to show up I didn't have to nobody made me you know, and I think that was a really great um, perspective that I hadn't probably considered. Um, and look, as I said the other night, um, the point I was trying to make about being overlooked was that the KPIs for, for, for selectors and for federations um, are totally based around medals. You win a medal, you get more money, you get more funding. Every, nearly every country in the world works that way and, and Olympic and World Championship medals give the sport the funding that they need. And it, it seems perverse because then if you don't win a medal, you get less, less funding, which is clearly not the solution to building and developing the sport. But the hard part, of course, is that that creates an environment that really isn't developing. It's actually seizing. You're seizing a person, hopefully just before the prime of their performance, they perform well, they win a medal, you as the selector or coach look good and you get money. 
But if the plan doesn't work, if your one stock recipe doesn't work for the seven women that you've got and three of them break down mentally or physically and two of them retire and whatever, or two of them are just a bit slower to develop in terms of their capacity, that's not your problem. And so I think over the years of being an older athlete in the sport, getting a lot of people coming to me and talking to me about their experiences, people consulting me, people reporting these horrific bloody anecdotes. And I think, you know, this is not the way to develop athletes in our, um, in our sport is to write them off, you know. But, but the challenge, of course, is, and I wrote a little note about this in my last blog, is that it's really hard to be a coach. You know, should it be the coach's responsibility, and I don't just mean this in road cycling, but to modify their coaching style to suit the different, the 15 different types of personality and skills in their crew or their squad, like that's nigh impossible, you know. And I think that it's a lot of coaches, once they get to an elite level, they figure, hey, it's my way or no way, you know. We're going to do this type of training. We're going to go to this kind of altitude camp. Um, you know, I, I follow that wonderful Peter Reed, who's a British men, um, rower in the men's eight. He has a fantastic Instagram account. And he's a great photographer. And you see all those big, strong men who are in the British men's heavyweight sweep squad. And you think those boys are all going to the same training camp. And just because they all look similar doesn't mean they're the same type of athlete mentally and physically. And yet they all know we've got to go to these camps. And if I get injured or if I break down or if I get fatigued, that's no Rio for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, or Lizzie Armitstead, who said that she's only, in an interview with Cycling News recently, said she's only really got on with two people. <laughs> you know, one's a coach. You mean in the administration yeah. or in the team? Oh, no, in, in, like, in, in terms of with cycling, she's one's, one's right. one of her first coach, and the other one's Danny Stamm. And, of course, Danny yeah, Stamm has people who famously have talked about how his approach really didn't work for them. Do you know what oh, I mean? Isn't it amazing? Yeah, for sure. And, and look like, at... You know, Chrissy Wellington, who's won Hawaii Ironman five times, you know, she's been coached by people like Dave Scott, but also even Brett Sutton, you know, notorious uh, slave driver when it comes to um, training loads. And that wouldn't work for everyone. Um, and so, again, that's, I suppose, if I had any message, you know, if I'm trying to be on a bandwagon, my message is just because that plan, the recipe, doesn't work for you, just because you didn't get selected for a national team or you got flicked from a, a squad because they said you're difficult, that doesn't mean that it won't work. You've got to go find, you've got to pursue the people who you think. You've got to work out, do I need to be pushed harder? Do I need to be held back? Do I need to be cajoled? Do I need to be loved more? You know, what is it about you as an athlete? And then go find the coach or the support staff or the mentor. You know, it's not, it's not other people's job to work everything out for you. You've got to work out what you need. I yeah, think that's yeah. a really – and that do, stuff doesn't, I think, come until you're a bit older and you've yeah. made mistakes and you've been around the wrong people. Yeah, but also not like letting people put you down because I think there's – you know, I think about Vicky Pendleton, for example, and, you know, every time, you know, people talk about, oh, she's a woman, you know, or, or Nicole Cook or or all these people, you mm. know, lots of people who are who people say, oh, she's just a woman. It's because she's a woman. And you're like, well, maybe no, man, that's not like – you know, maybe there are dudes who are suffering – who, who who don't who are, yeah. who, who are having problems from this you know maybe it's and actually maybe it's it, it is it is an interesting thing because i think there's a, there are one size fits all coaching presented sure. and it's and there's a kind of as you say like you know you'd never expect to teach people the violin everyone the same way you know or sure. or, or get you know when you work when i work you know when i when i've managed staff you never man you know you always you never manage all your staff in the same way do you you always yeah. do it differently absolutely so and i think Oh, sorry. No, no, no. 
<laughs> oh, I was just going to say that I think also, um, I don't know if this is true, but what I read about Pendleton is I found very inspiring because GB Cycling, this was the message, I don't know if it was all true, but they basically said, you know, she was recognised as an absolute pain in the ass athlete who was really difficult, labile, emotional, and um, frequently not performing as she should based neurotic. on psychological. Yeah, yeah, neurotic. Okay, but you know what they did? They said, right, well, we need to do something about this. What does this athlete need? Does she need this, that, or that, either, other? Instead of actually sacking her and saying, well, that's too hard, let's hire a 21-year-old who's not as fast but who doesn't give us any stick, you know, or who's consistently B plus instead of occasionally A+. Plus. And now we all know that it's a lot easier to put up with the strange quirks of someone um, when they are winning and or have the potential to win than if they're not. So it's a very fine line and, and, and there's lots of stories about Cadell Evans burning bridges with teams because he was deeply neurotic and guess what? Then he found this beautiful match in the Team BMC and it all came together and he won the Tour de France. And then everyone was more than happy to tolerate his quirky... Uh, sort of self-absorbed, difficult ways because he's a Tour de France winner. And that's and a very with, challenging And the same position. with Wiggins. The same with Wiggins. I mean, I've always, right. I've always been intrigued with the different ways that people talk about Wiggins versus Nicole Cook. You know, or, or Emma Pooley. Yeah. When Emma Pooley was speaking out about some stuff with British cycling, they basically kind of, you know, put, put, some, put some like, I, I can't remember what they said about her, but they basically dismissed her as kind of a neurotic, crazy woman. Right. Whereas you're like, Which yeah, Pooley but... is definitely not neurotic or no. crazy. I don't know Nicole Cook at all, but, um, yeah, but she's yelled at me a lot in races and I thought she was a bitch. But that's probably <laughs> because I was in her way and she was saying, why are you here? Yeah. Go away. But, but I think there's something interesting as well in that in the, I think they kind of expect expect girls to be different. Do you know what I mean? And, oh, and like, absolutely. And, and, I, I mean, there's no, there's no tolerance for the same widespread volatility in female athletes um, that there is for men. And, I, you know, we've got some tennis players here in Australia who are competing in the Australian Open, a few young men who are, have had absolutely abominable behaviour that would not be tolerated by female tennis players. And we've had some pretty crappy behaviour by male cyclists that if a girl in the national team went out and got drunk and then abused one of the coaches, she wouldn't have a scholarship anymore. But there's just this it's a different pathway i think for men so they there's still this idea that your behavior needs to be different that you should be kind all the time and when we read this with a wonderful interview and, and blog that was written by jennifer lawrence in hollywood you know I want people to like me, so I'm not going to behave in a needy, grappling way for cash because I want, you know, I want to be seen as a nice person. And there's a lot of pressure on female athletes, and there's a lot of pressure on older female athletes. Like you should know better than to be um, to outline your pain and suffering. You should just nod and smile. And I think, well, that's not the way everybody is. Some people are like that, um, and some people aren't. But it makes it so much more fundamental. I loved your speech at the end of the at the end of the. There was so much I loved in your speech at the end after your hour. But but the other fun thing that's hilarious about it is like you know you're completely buzzing off adrenaline and exhaustion and stuff like that. You know, congratulations for being able to string three words together. But people, <laughs> critici but people criticizing you for having a bit of a dig. Well, fuck me. When else are you going to have that? You know, but, and this is interesting oh, about know. how you use your platform too. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, um, uh, another very high-profile writer made a comment and said there's no place for politics in sport. And I said, I absolutely disagree. When else would I have an opportunity to outline the challenges that many athletes face um, other than when I've just broken a world record? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> like, exactly. You know, that's like saying that the two men who um, did the black pan, uh, black power salute on the podium at the Olympics back in the, in the 70s shouldn't have made their message and that was made very clear to them. The poor the poor guys that did that were, you know, 
was just excommunicated from from their situation in Athletics America and so was our Australian um, runner. So I think, okay, if, if you feel that way, fine, but guess what? Athletes are human beings as well and they've had their own share of frustration. And as you said earlier when we were off air, you know, Cavendish has had many an outburst and people forgive him for that. Um, I, I didn't name anyone and I didn't drop any F and C combinations. So <laughs> but it's think, fun, but you, you make know, it more fun. I mean, I, I, you know, I genuinely think that it's much better to have a rider who, who's saying, you know, who has a bit of, who has a bit of edge to them. Do you know what I mean? Like, like if everyone was, um, if everyone was, 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 was nice, you know, I like the way that, you know, when people ask Marina Voss, are you killing cycling? She kind of, you know, she does it in a very low key way, but I also like the people like Lizzie who come off and go, Oh my God, what the hell is going on there? And I love, and I, so no, I loved it. And I loved you thanking your people and the response. I just want to talk quickly about the response. I, you know, I like the, the, the photo of the Endura, people in the Endura factory. Oh, how Scotland. cool was that? I liked I all know. the people going crazy on Twitter for you. It was really lovely yeah, yeah. to watch. I've had so many amazing messages and, like, it's just been mind-blowing. The number of people, particularly, um, I suppose it just touches a chord with a few people, me being a bit older. Um, I think that idea of overcoming adversity and, and coming to something late and persisting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had a wonderful chat with a friend of mine, Osher Ginsberg, who's a very high-profile media personality here, but he's also a good friend of mine. And we were talking about that idea in sport where you have to remind yourself, and I had to remind myself, Molly, Molly Van Howling is just a woman. She's an extraordinary woman, but she's not a robot. She's not superhuman. Uh, if she can do it, it's that wonderful line, if not me, then who? If not now, then when? Yeah. You know. And I think that 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 strikes a chord with people, that persisting even when you're afraid and persisting even when you, you're being told that you're not great, that's what inspires people, particularly with, with kids, you know, with girls and, and saying, and a friend of my boyfriend's, he's a rowing coach in Adelaide, he brought his whole girls' crew to watch it and he said he loved the interview afterwards because, and he talked to them about it later and he said, what did you like about that? And she, they were all saying things like, and she, she said that she had lots of help, she said she was nervous the day before but she did it anyway, she said that all the training was really hard and boring but she did it anyway, you know, like it wasn't just this fairy tale story. Yeah. And I think that that connects with more people perhaps, you know. It didn't like, I didn't just say, well, I just woke up and then I was amazing and, you know, and then I won. <laughs> I was trying to think about why I like, you know, I mean, as a why, why you converted me to the hour and I kind of came to the conclusion that it's because I think what when you converted me to the hour, it wasn't, a, wasn't so much about the event, it was about your connection with the event that had mm. me, you know, so I might not, you know, so if the next person who goes for it, I might not be interested. I was thinking, would I be in that interested? And it's like, no, it's got to be mm. about that person and that connection. And that mm. was, that was fascinating to me. You know, it's, sure. it, I mean, even though I did like freak myself out and have massive adrenaline spikes and, oh God, is she going to do it? <laughs> and, you know, like, oh shit. But then I guess I, th I also felt that, you know, if you hadn't kind of come up with some, um, I don't know, Bridey has strange back injury that means she can never ride the track again <laughs> three weeks before. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, I would. I mean, would you, would you would you have done that if it had if it was looking bad, or would you have gone through with it anyway? Um, good question. I don't know. Um, speaking about that, uh, and this is something that we've um, spoken about off air as well. Um, I would have to say the biggest physical challenge for me was absolute terrible saddle sores and saddle discomfort riding in the aero position 
frequently either both on the time trial bike and the track bike um trying to manage that i actually spoke to the wonderful josie bobridge who's jack bobridge's wife josie tomich former world champion in the individual pursuit and olympian in the team pursuit we'd made a joke years ago about how uncomfortable it can be doing time trial training all the time and she she sort of said to me oh you you should try being a, a pursuiter you know you get home when you do track camp you get home and you're putting a bag of peas on your groin <laughs> for an hour and don't laugh, it's not funny. Truly. No, no, no. no that, that, was, that was that laugh of, oh, my fucking God. <laughs> but I think unlike that great um, blog that you posted the link to um, a month or so ago, it's just the kind of the stuff that people don't want to talk about, you know, both with men and women, that you're, you're as a bike racer, you're not sitting upright on your sit bones, as they're euphemistically called, your ischial tuberosities. You're sitting forward on your external genitalia when you're a girl. Yeah squashing all the soft sensitive parts yeah. that are getting lots of blood supply and you're not moving and you're putting all this pressure on them and then underneath those soft sensitive parts is your pubic bone like there's no there's no padding it's not like even even the same with the sit bones you're not sitting on your buttocks that are muscular and got some fat around them you're sitting on fleshy bits of your body that then a couple of one centimeter below that is bone so it's just a very unnatural position to be in on a regular basis and I was really fortunate to be sponsored by Dash and they gave me this great saddle which is the best saddle I've ever ridden but you're still sitting on a saddle you're not sitting on a cloud so it's that was a really difficult thing like I was doing training sessions in the weeks leading up and I couldn't keep still I had to keep moving to change pressure distribution because it was so painful Um, and so there were a couple of weeks beforehand where I thought far out what if I actually can't maintain a decent aero position because I'm so uncomfortable that yeah. you know that was a bit nerve-wracking yeah. well Voss has said that Voss has says that's why she can't do time you know that's why she can't time trial so what you know that, that's her you know Achilles heel of time mm-hmm. trainings because she just the position just 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 messes you just just messes her up it's it's interesting so quick yeah. question um Paul Speed asked me to ask you about your hand your your um, custom 3D printed parts for your handlebars so you didn't have custom pr- custom 3D saddle printed for you. <laughs> Could have, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was pretty much devised by my wonderful coach um, and in, then they were built in conjunction um, with a company called Lucia Technic who are really um, familiar name to people here in Melbourne. He's a really clever engineer who's a former lightweight rower um, and he's done a lot of work with aerodynamic fitting and um, modifications for people here in Melbourne. So he's like a, he's just a commercial enterprise and they basically worked out with my CDA that I was the most aero when, when I could get a little bit more of that length, lengthened arm, you know, if you think about the O'Brie Superman mm. position. And, and the way Wiggins was, you're basically trying to lengthen and then flatten your upper body so that then your head can kind of form. And there were a few pictures of me with this perfect position. Sometimes it was a little too high, but where your head is almost in front of your body, not as good as Caleb Ewan, but that, that kid is a freak. <laughs> and so by doing that and by, by having to maintain legal length of my aero extensions and where the position of my saddle was, I was ending up in this situation where the most beautiful aero position I could hold had my the pads of my hand were right on the ends of the extension so I had no control over the bars if you like I wasn't actually I was gripping on to the end of the extensions with my pinky finger which is not controlled that you want <laughs> at the hour. so what we did was well Stephen came up with this great idea of let's make these kind of L shaped um 3D printed 
bar ends. They'll come across. I can rest the, the thena eminence, which is that fleshy part of your hand below your thumb, and your hypothena eminence, the fleshy part of your hand below your pinky finger, on those. And then I can grip my fingers around the ends. And we move them a little bit to try and get them into good positions. Um, and they worked really well. And then we... Um, we were changing our front end over um, to to suit everything that we had with those great USA R1 track bars that I used that were beautiful from Ultimate um, Sports Engineering. And in doing that, we broke the 3D ends. And so then there was, oh, crap, and the guy who makes them has gone away on holidays and, <laughs> and, and now it's champs is like 10 days to go and then oh crap we have to send all of these pictures to the UCI to get approval from Switzerland to say that what we're using is all good and so it was actually some stressful times there in that week and a half leading up um but they all got together on the right day and um yeah it worked perfectly <laughs> and are there any other people or sponsors or people like that you want to thank or mention I know you've mentioned a lot um, oh, well, one of the ones I definitely want to thank is Mavic. They provided those beautiful Comet discs for me that we lost a couple of decals as the wheels were being transported over from Melbourne to Sydney. So we took all of them off because two of them were scratched and it looked really stupid um, to have some on the, st- the stickers on there but the others. But that's Mavic were the wheels I used. They provided them for me and they have been a wonderful sponsor. So I definitely um, want to mention them along with all the other sponsors that we've mentioned before the two guys from Cervelo in Australia were wonderful they were so pumped they came down into the infield and we got a big picture of me holding my my novelty check sized piece of paper <laughs> how cool is that I wanted to take that on the plane but <laughs> they oh. wouldn't let me. oh that's so unfair uh, <laughs> so yeah look lots of great technical partners Cervelo, Mavic, Powder Max, Feather, uh, USC who make those bars they are the absolute bomb um, mark, mark off and see bearing um, the bearings but yeah Endura I have to say in terms of if I was to pick an emotional favorite um, my contact with them has probably been the most um, as I said in my blog a few weeks ago the amount of time and effort that they put into making that final suit that I wore which was all a big rush just because we made some they made the sleeves a little shorter because they'd been too long. And Jim McFarlane and his people there just seriously, like they did it all in one morning. They put it in the post and it arrived in Adelaide before I got there. And um, those the staff there and their communication, they were just just terrific. And when you when people go to that much effort for you, I know it sounds like a cliche, but you feel very humbled. You know, you just think, wow, this is amazing that this organization that does all the technology and the clothing for Alex Dowsett and for Movistar and you know scans Quintana's little tiny body and you know they are making (laughs) four suits for me um and to get everything perfect and so I was just very very privileged to be looked after by such great people oh and you had an amazing team I did love I did love seeing the um you what the Freebird Velo slogan every domestic has her day that was organised months and months ago and I'd totally forgotten about it actually um, and she generously allowed us to use the slogan although they changed it from her day to their day because you've got to appeal to everybody. <laughs> so but that was really cool to have all of them walking around in those T-shirts. It was really great for Jen because she's obviously done some great designs for cycling and stuff. And people so, can buy them on her website. Free bird, go, go, go and find her. It's Freebird Velo and then you can buy those T-shirts. Great. Mm. She also does those pink, hot pink socks that say "Alley Bitches," and I had a pair of those. I've still got a pair of those from that I used to race in, so um, they're pretty cool as well. Um, and look, HP Tech, and particularly Stephen Lane, my coach, like he's been a revelation. He he had never coached anyone on the track before. He'd never ridden on a track. He'd never done lap timing. He 
you know, I did put so much time and effort into this and, um, you know, sometimes you feel like, oh, what can I do to thank you enough? You know, how can I repay you? Um, how can I give you back what you've put into this? But I, 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 you know, I think he's gotten a lot out of it. I think he's learned a lot. He, he's, um, you know, all of the other athletes that he coaches, just the regular mortals who aren't world record holders. <laughs> they all... <laughs> They all think he's awesome as well. And, you know, in, in Melbourne, he's a really smart guy and he's a, he's a very good athlete himself. Um, but I, I just can't thank him enough because um, my partner is incredibly supportive as he is. He's got a, two full-time jobs coaching athletes and rowers. And, you know, he wasn't able to come with me very often to the track or help out um, from a logistical point of view. Um, and yet Steve was just always there. He was amazing. So, um, without him and his colleague, Ken, who took care of all the bike stuff, um, yeah, all of this just would have been too complicated and that's why I, I needed to thank all of them absolutely. You know, they just, uh, like anyone who does an individual event, there are multitudes of people behind them doing it and making it easier, making it less stressful, you know, all that stuff, yeah. Oh, awesome. So finally, finally, now you've got this like, little moment, you know, you've got your, you've got your, your, your window, your, your, your window to do it. What are you going to, what do you, what, what do you want to use this like little moment of fame for? <laughs> oh, just to get into restaurants quicker. Uh, <laughs> do you know who I cat. am? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Are you going to just carry around the, you can just like leave copies of the key, the, the, the key back page, like lying around everywhere. Oh yeah, that's me. Oh, I forgot that was there. Oh, look, I don't know if I want to use it for anything. I think, um, look, I'm still the manager and a rider in my National Road Series team and I, I look after the riders that we've got in our team and we've got some absolutely amazing riders Rush in this team. team that everyone yeah, should be following. Team. Um, our, our little team captain who won the NRS last year, she got second at the National Road Championships Ruth just Corsett. two weeks ago. Pardon? Ruth Corsett. Of course, she's an incredible writer. She's a mother of two and has a full-time job. Um, we've got a lot of really good, interesting personalities in our team, and, and like Joe Hogan, who spent quite a few years racing overseas um, in, a, in the US and Europe, and uh, Loretta Hansen, who is an absolutely a writer to watch. Um, she's actually going to head overseas and race for Colavita this year, but she raced with us over the summer and um, won the sprint and under-23 jerseys at the Santos Tour and under women's race. Um, so... For me, I think that um, it, it solidifies my role modelling, I suppose, you know, in a way that it's, it's pretty great for the writers in our team to have someone managing and looking after them who knows what it takes to commit to something, to work hard, to set a goal. You know, I think that helps strengthen the motivation and the commitment of all our writers. Um, and it does, it's great for business. You know, it's great for this team to have um, results through me, through Ruth, through Loretta that um, promote women's cycling in Australia and help cultivate the National Road Series because it's really growing quite a lot over the last couple of years thanks to Cycling Australia, thanks to sponsors, thanks to, uh, you know, independent race organisers who say, yeah, yeah, we'll put on a women's race here. So it's slowly but surely catching up to, say, the American National Road Series, which has been quite big for probably five to seven years. So um, I'm really impressed and I'm, I'm so impressed by the standard of racing um, in, in Australia. So that's a, that's a really cool thing, I think, that I can be part of. Excellent. Well, you sound like you're on a high. You've got to go to work. Oh, yes, I just have time. I've got to go to work. Have a fantastic, fantastic time. Oh, my accidental Bizarra asked me to just fangirl at you for, on her behalf. So, oh my God, Brady, you're wonderful. It was so good. I loved it so much. Oh, 
I have to say, the, the cheering and the people banging on the side of the wall and um, yelling out, that was amazing. I just, you know, it is pretty incredible. I was coming past every lap on the home straight and I could hear people doing a Mexican wave. Like, I just thought, wow, you guys are incredible. It was just so for, all, for people who came, thank you so much because they didn't need to. They could have stayed home and watched it on the live stream, but they did. Um, and my family, my goodness, my father and stepmother commuted with their caravan from uh, Mooloolabar and the Sunshine Coast and in Queensland all the way down to Adelaide with no air conditioning in their car <laughs> because my dad's an idiot. And so it was hot as anything and, they, you know, my aunt came, my mother came, my sister came. So, like, that's pretty cool to, to do that. Um, and, and to her credit, my mother, you know, who we're not really, she's not a sort of sporting fan. And she just said, I, I think I realize now, you know, what level of commitment and preparation and, um, yeah, to inspire your own family or your own parents. That's, That's wonderful. pretty cool. Oh, Bridie. Well, you inspired all of us and we love it. And I'm so, so happy for you. I just, I just, just couldn't be happier for you. So, you know, congratulations. You're wonderful. Thank you. you. And um, if anyone wants to find out the links to things to be able to watch it, anything we talked about, that's going to be on my site, prowomenscycling.com. Don't forget to, you should always be following Bridie on her website, um, Bridie, what's your website? Bridie.com.au? and uh, on twitter at bridie underscore od and you can find the links to her instagram and her facebook and all of that stuff send her a message tell her how great she is she's wonderful (laughs) (laughs) or not tell me how to write a better line i'd I'd be very interested to know how i can write just 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 think how further you'd have gone bridie if you'd only written a proper line (laughs) (laughs) well don't don't let it change you you know i i hope i hope you'll still be you know writing your own twitter and you know like 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 talking to people at races and stuff rather than just walking past with a pair of dark glasses (laughs) (laughs) i'm not cool enough for that trust me (laughs) um a thousand congratulations genuinely thank you so much sarah thanks for chatting to me excellent for the links to everything we talked about today, including the video of Bridie's Hour Tent, which has her amazing talk at the end, go to my site, prowomenscycling.com, where you can find everything, including how to follow Bridie for her future adventures. I'm funded to do these kind of interviews through my wonderful Patreon supporters who fund me from as little as $2 a month. If you'd like to join them, please go to www.patreon.com slash and thank you from the bottom of my heart.